Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. In the previous episode, I told Jean-Michel Glachon that I would love to get more insights from an Indian expert. With 1.4 billion people, India is obviously one of the key players in addressing climate change. India made a carbon neutrality pledge at COP26 in Glasgow in 2021, but the situation is hampered by the development needs of a population that is often far too poor to act. On the contrary, many people in India are bearing the brunt of climate change, for which they have absolutely no responsibility. Here come Rashita Misra, the passionate associate director, knowledge and advocacy at Selco Foundation, who has over a decade of experience in reducing uneven access to resources for marginalized communities in India. She strongly believes in the power of sustainable energy for development and is committed to improving access to it for underserved communities across India. Rashida's approach is centered on active collaboration with stakeholders, ensuring that Selco's solutions are socially, financially and environmentally sustainable. Rashida's work lies at the intersection of research, program design and implementation. She examines the role of energy in furthering access to livelihood, health and well-being. Her approach is centered on active collaboration and environmental sustainability. Rashida's warmth and enthusiasm for her work shines through in everything she does. She's a true leader in the field and her commitment to making a positive difference in the lives of others is truly an inspiration to all. Rashida, welcome. Oh my God, thank you so much, Marin. I didn't expect that kind of introduction. You were very generous with that. No, it's totally deserved. And uh, I'm a huge admirer of what you do with the Selka Foundation. So you've been with the Selco Foundation for eight years now, and you're the Associate Director of Knowledge and Advocacy, and you work to improve access to sustainable energy for underserved communities. So what inspired you to focus on this area? And what do you think are the biggest challenges in achieving these goals? So what inspired me, I think it, it happened by chance that I started working in this field. Uh, my background is actually architecture. And I was very interested in heritage conservation when I studied that. But I think like broadly, my idea of heritage conservation was lied a lot with local ownership as well. So you might or might not know that in, in India, when we talk about conservation, it's primarily the big monuments and we have a lot of those. But it's not like, you know, talking about the towns and the culture of certain places, like in terms of food, in terms of art, in terms of craft, which in a way which in a way kind of inspires the buildings that had come up some time back or inspires the way that the cities have shaped up over a period of time. So I think when I was working in that, my interest was really to say that how do you really conserve the heritage of a town while giving the ownership to people who own that heritage and who live in that heritage? Uh, and I think in that space, I got interested a lot in the whole aspect around development itself because in India, these heritage towns, and when I'm saying people who own heritage are usually people from poorer economic backgrounds as well. So that's when I started studying economics and political science, and I got generally interested 
in unequal access to opportunities, which was just saying that generally there is a system which allows people to some people to access some things and others who are not able to access anything. And for me, the key became that how do you really make that system more even rather than do band-aid solutions here and there. So in that way, I think I got introduced to Selco, whose understanding of energy access was very, very similar. As a concept, it was started in 1994. And the idea even then was that certain countries, people have access to energy and others don't. In those countries, development indicators are also lagging behind, which needs us to kind of understand that there is a connect between the two. I'm not able to be productive as a human being in my livelihood because I don't have energy. Uh, I'm not able to walk and think straight because it's so hot and I don't have access to cooling, which is linked to energy. I don't have access to health, which is linked to energy. I don't have access to a well-functioning school, which is linked to energy. So I think generally, like that was the idea. And it was saying that, you know, there is an uneven system right now because of which certain people are able to access energy and do multiple things, whereas others are not. So that's what actually like brought me to Selco itself and made me kind of start looking into this whole idea. I still don't consider myself as someone who's working on energy, but really on that system, which is providing equal opportunities to people, or at least that's what the vision is. One of the tools that we use to do that is by creating a system for energy access. But I do believe that it has a spillover effect that communities are able to see in the way that health, livelihood and other aspects are also impacted over a period of time. So that's where my interest lies. And that's what brought me to the sector as well. And yeah, that's where the learning continues, so to say. With it. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that in such a context with so many discrepancy, disparities between people, between regions, between the state of conservation. And also, if I'm not mistaken, India is so big, it's also very decentralized somehow. So there must be so many different. So where do you work exactly? Where are your activities concentrated? Is it all around the subcontinent? Yeah. So actually, that's a very interesting point that you bring about that India is so big, but it's also very decentralized to some extent. And that's something that I've really started to appreciate over a period of time. But I think like geography wise, we, we also have like very different terrains, very different contexts of development as well. So and what we've done at Selco is that we see our work as like an open implementation based R&D lab. And what we believe, like once you start understanding energy as a systemic issue, we wanted to place our work in certain different types of systems. So saying if we are working in a region which is drought prone, which has a lot of migration, which has a lot of heat stress, which has water issues because of which agriculture and other livelihoods are being impacted in a certain way, then that leads us to one type of system in which we are working. But then on the other hand, if we choose a region which is forested, you know, heavy tribal population, very less institutional infrastructure present, our government schemes don't really get in there. You know, awareness levels are very different. That's a different system that we work in. And then the third, if we go into areas which are highly mountainous, no road infrastructure, very poor civil society organizations or not very strengthened civil society. That's a different system that we work in. So we've kind of chosen our geographies based on this. We've more or less kind of looked at India and we said, okay, 
can we choose four or five very different contexts to work in? Because if we figure out how to change the system for energy access in those regions, we more or less have a model for across the world, not just across the country. So we have worked in about seven states in India, chosen exactly the way that I mentioned. But we do use these seven states as a way to train other partners who are working in other developing countries as well. So we do constantly have partners who are based out of Tanzania, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone, who are not just coming here, seeing the work you're learning from there, but actually we're going back with them, doing assessments with them, which is helping us inform our work here, but also helping them take some of our learnings forward there as well. So that's how we're kind of broadly in different uh, geographies in India, but very conscious decision to choose states from that typology and systems lens itself. Yeah, you know, having such a different context also very, very much helps to understand that there is no one size fits all. And uh, I mean, when you talk about the mountainous region or places where there's a lot of forests, I would expect the impact of climate change being totally different. And also the energy access conversation being different. So what are really your takes on those areas, regions? Uh, you're talking to somebody who knows very little about India and I'm really, really willing to learn more. And I really think that being at the intersection between technical and social humans, the human side is, is really the best way to unfold a lot of things and uh, understand much better the, the challenges that are at stake. Sure. So there are two aspects to it, I think, right? From, from our perspective, heavily our work is into understanding what is the application of energy. And, and how does that kind of help in developmental activities for an individual, for a community, for a region, for a civil society organization working in a region or a government institution working in a region as well? And I think that itself differs from geography to geography, right? So, for example, if I am looking at uh, dairy farmers in North Karnataka, which is one of the geographies that we work with, you have... Area which has a lot of dairy farmers, but the context of India is also that there are a lot of small dairy farmers. So they would have usually like about three cows to 10 or 20 cows, right? So they're not the large farms with hundreds of cows, but you have smaller dairy farms that are there. So it's, it's decentralized in that way as well. But then in North Karnataka, historically, there have been many dairy farmers and there is a dairy industry which is very prevalent. So you actually have uh, private dairy companies or dairy cooperatives who have a system in which they're able to procure from dairy farmers their milk every morning and evening. They have testing centers, they have chilling centers, and of course there are gaps in that, but it's still a very sophisticated ecosystem to some extent. What is the gap in this area though is the efficiency of the farms, right? So if you actually look at the one, the increasing aspirations in our society itself, as I think, you know, uh, I told you about earlier also that if you go to a rural farmer, he will say like, you know, my son doesn't want to do it because dairy farming is hard, laborious work. If my son turns into a dairy farmer, no woman in my village will marry my son because that means that she'll be cleaning the dairy farm the whole day. She will smell of manure and cow dung, which is not what you want. Right? So there are those reasons why people want to move away from dairy farming, but it's an asset. It's a skill. Right? So how do we really make it more efficient? 
we bring in technology to be able to do that. We bring in energy, solar energy powered technology to be able to do that. But while they work on, say, milking machine, fresher farms, you know, nicely designed sheds that are able to help cleaning of the shed easier as well, provide a cooler environment for the cow as well. The real gap actually in that area is that I don't have fodder to feed my farm animals. Or I spend so much in summer season when I can't send them out for grazing because it's a drought prone area. So just cost of fodder goes extremely high, which means it becomes unviable for me. Now I can bring in different ways that they can start producing their own fodder, but because it's a drought prone area, I need a solution for fodder production, which is also water efficient. Right? So we started kind of working with entities to actually bringing in hydroponics to grow their own fodder itself. So it's using about one-sixth the amount of water that a traditional kind of growing mechanism would use, but you actually get fresh green fodder. So it's viable for the farmer. It's keeping climate in mind, but it's a completely different way that energy is being used to capacitate that particular farmer, right? In that particular region. But if we go into the northeastern region, where dairy farming is not in the same way at all. There are no private dairy cooperatives who are collecting, who are doing collections of farm uh, milk and so on and so forth. You actually need maybe cooling, which is at the farm level itself. And you need processing to happen at a village level itself. Because my market who I'm selling to is very, very local. But fodder is not an issue. Right? The pressure pumps might not be an issue. So the way that the use of energy would be extremely different in one region to the other region. And that's what becomes kind of interesting for us to kind of navigate through because you're constantly trying to say it's not going to be enough if I put energy on top of this farm because that person needs a solution for fodder management. That person needs a solution for processing and someone needs to package it together. And we're going to be able to do that. So that's one aspect, Marin, that we really tried to kind of understand. The second has been that I think there is an overall mental model that we all have, which says that, you know, I've heard so many times in international conferences saying like, you know, why do we want, we don't want poor to use solar energy because we shouldn't ask them to pay, pay so much for energy. Energy is a public good. And then my question is always to them, we're all paying for grid. We all have electricity bills. Electricity is not free. And actually, if you look at the lifetime cost that we have for each of us that we pay on energy bills, it's actually pretty high. It's more than what we would have paid in like five to seven years if we actually invested in solar instead. And that's the other aspect where we've been trying to create evidence and show not just our end users, community members, but more importantly, like policymakers, you know, energy departments, health departments in Africa as well, where they don't have a grid so far, right? Telling them that this grid is going to be inefficient. It's not the technology of the future anymore. Go decentralized. No, it's it's going to be a lot better in terms of economic value. First of all, we are in that place where we can compare economic value as well, but environmental as well and social as well, because it pushes you to think what people will use energy for rather than just supply them energy and say, use, please use so that my business model works, which is what is happening in India right now. So I think like those are like two aspects of conversations that we engage with. One at a very micro level, which is more on what is energy being used for? And is that the most optimized? Is that as per need? And other, which is saying, 
please let's set up an ecosystem and an infrastructure for decentralized renewable energy and not for grid anymore. It just does not make economic sense. Forget anything else. Yeah, uh, we had uh, last year, early last year, a conversation about grids and mini grids really in uh, the context of rural Madagascar. And it was exactly this. I mean, people may want to have a... Uh, electricity to charge their phone because what they want first and foremost is to be able to communicate and then maybe if they can they will also have a TV that they, they would like to plug because it's again access to information it's something that that they truly want and this Nicolas Sancy from uh, Nanui Madagascar really said we have to get away from what the international donors expect people to want because they come with their own let's say, developed country lens and bias, etc., and go listen to what people actually make energy and what they, they really want to, to go for. And it's really important to have this conversation now that we are transitioning towards clean energy because clean energy works better when it's decentralized indeed. So without the massive grace that you, that you mentioned. And uh, Just to add one more thing to it, though, I think there is a difference though that we have seen slightly which is also like we started to say like you know maybe like decentralization is not the right word of course technically decentralized renewable energy is what we work on but I think where our focus has also been is to say that you know let's look at consumption and generation together and then once you understand consumption and generation together let's see what is the best way to supply that whole aspect to you. What I mean by that is there are certain models where, say, for example, in a region where currently there is no use of energy that anyone's worked on, right? So there is, maybe there is a base understanding that I need to get a light in my house, right? And you put something like a microgrid in place, right? For a microgrid to be able to function, you need certain level of consumption to happen. There is a base level of generation that is happening in that microgrid. So, and there is an operational cost to running that microgrid as well. So now I will actually work with the villagers to say, consume more because I need to cover my costs of running the microgrid as well. In those kind of cases where there is not an established load already and I know my base microgrid load conditions would not be met, we usually go by saying, let's look at the same house as generating how much they need and consuming how much they need and grow it modularly as their need increases. Because what that means is I designed the system for that one light. And inherently, I am the owner of my generation of power. Right? So it's actually more than decentralizing, it's democratizing it. I am owning how much I'm generating because that's how much I need and I'm paying for that much. No one is pushing me to do more than that. Right. So, so somewhere we've also kind of seen that, you know, depending on the energy load itself, the social glue between people, we're able to kind of say which energy supply model do we use? There is a challenge that we see in the energy sector these days where it's going towards a certain type of technology. Like say, for example, if I told you, you know, everyone should be using a Mac laptop. It's not true. Like, you know, certain people should be using it. Certain people can do without it. So how do we really, like one of the other examples that we use is saying that, you know, if, if I ask you, Marine, that, you know, uh, you need to do a presentation to me. That's the purpose of the software that you need. But then I say, 
use an Excel. You're not going to be able to do the best at that point of time, right? So it's not about saying everyone should have an Excel, which is equal to everyone should have a microgrid or everyone should have grid or everyone should have a decentralized solar system on their roofs. It's dependent on what you need, what your context is, based on which we choose the model. So that's just one aspect. We're cognizant of the technology. We are not tied to anything. It's again more driven by what is the need, what's, what's the economics of the system, what's the environmental aspects, what's the supply chain in the area. And accordingly, let's figure out the best way to supply energy as well. But best, not in the way saying that, oh, it's a poor country or oh, it's a region which is anyway so hard to read. So let me just do this because it's an incrementally good solution. You'll be shocked and I, I'm sure you know, but in so many rural areas when I go, they, they literally use camping lights, what we would call camping lights in US or Europe. They use that as energy access solutions. I mean, come on, right? Like where is our benchmark or respect for our fellow community members if we're saying this is the light, please use it and you have access to electricity now. So setting the benchmarks as we would for ourselves and our family and our friends, but then choosing a solution which is apt. That's, I think, one of the biggest gaps in the energy sector right now. We're running behind technology, not as designing them as per the need that exists on the ground. Yes, I suppose a lot of us make those kind of shortcuts where we think that the solution that fits us is the one that should fit everyone. And uh, if it's the cheapest, then it's the best because all those poor people, they don't have anything. And it's really not fair to think this way and it has to be addressed in a more systemic way. One of the issues that comes as well is the proper sustainability of those camping lights and uh, and those kind of mini solar or um, solar kit solution as well. And is it something you work on too? Yes. So I think our basic aspect of looking into it has been that one, we have honestly in this in areas where we are working with street vendors, where portability of lights is extremely important. We have looked at areas such as urban migrants. So working in slums, for example, extremely temporary communities where again, the use and throw aspect actually works because they don't want to commit to a light system which is on their roof. They don't have homes. They should be able to move around easily with them. So there are, you know, again, contexts in which even we have used solar lanterns or those Pico lights as solutions itself. But I think the main thing that we have always kept in mind is, as I was saying, like benchmarking of solutions, saying that, you know, is that something that I would want as light in my house? And if not... Why is it that I will say no to it and go for something else, but this particular household is not? Probably the biggest chances are that the reason that that is happening is, as you said, like it's a cheaper solution, right? So we're, we're constantly kind of saying, what is your willingness to pay? How much are you able to pay for it? And then this is the best that we can do right now. But no one kind of questions, I think like one of our earliest kind of learnings was questioning affordability. And saying that, you know, if I, as someone who is earning how much ever, but if I have to put 10 times of that monthly salary into buying a car, into buying a house, into buying, investing in a plot of land for my business, 10 times my monthly salary or equal to my annual salary, I will take a loan for it. I will not put my money in cash. Similarly, when we're talking about poorer, poorer communities, when we want them to invest in energy infrastructure for their future, 
but they are going to put in twice price, 10 times their monthly salary into that product. And if they're putting that amount into that product, which is quality product, we have to unlock financing for them. They have to have access to credit. And that is something that many people do not work on. We would look at saying, how much are they able to pay in cash? I will either raise a subsidy for it or I would cheapen my product and give it out. And then they will keep paying for it every six months, one year, two years. But they can pay for it because it's, it's in cash they can pay for it. But in the long run, they are paying more because they have to buy every year. If we had unlocked financing for them, it would have helped them access a better quality light. It would have helped a supplier, the technology producer, ensure that they're going to give good quality light because they have incentive to do that now. I will lay out a servicing for this particular product as well because I have an incentive to do that right now. And the person has financial access, which he or she can use that to invest in a bike later on, invest in their business later on, get a loan for their child's education. So it has other spillover effects as well. So we've often kind of seen like the financial affordability aspect as the main thing that we play around with to make sure that we are not, you know, making the idea of affordability or the bias of affordability a barrier in our heads to actually make sure that communities access good quality technologies as per what they require. Yeah, you try to overcome this kind of poverty premium that uh, poor people pay because they can't access the first uh, investment, the first uh, step that would later enable everything to be much cheaper and much uh, of much better quality. And so do you think that this kind of approach, well, poor people having still to pay for this premium, etc., is one of the reasons that hampers really sustainable development in India? And how do you think other organizations or the Selco Foundation can really help overcome this kind of challenge. Also, an interesting figure that I saw when doing some research for the podcast is that there is this kind of pledge to get a climate neutral, but at the time being, only 10% of the current energy mix comes from renewable energy sources and or nuclear power. So there is such a long road and such an enormous challenge. So practically speaking, what kind of steps are implemented? So in terms of the first question, the affordability aspect, I think like generally in India, especially after interacting with our partners in, in Africa, I realized that in India, we're lucky to a certain extent because years of subsidy in 70s and 80s or even earlier than that have gone into really getting a rural banking infrastructure in place in India. So even if you go into rural areas, you have nationalized banks where interest rates are controlled, operational costs are taken into account. There is a lot of financial literacy programs by the government, saving groups by the government, which have been created, all of which forms a foundation on the basis of which we're able to do affordable asset-based long-term financing right now. That is completely absent in Africa. So even though... I think we all know we're working in the de in the development sector that in Africa, if you are taking a loan, most probably you have access to only microfinance institutions, which are giving loans for maybe six months to one year time period, 40% interest rate. So that is not something that any of us would take as loans for anything that we're kind of taking on. So that is something which I think India has had the 
fortune that it was able to invest in that in the past. And I think many of our agriculture work, you know, micro businesses that are coming on, as you were saying, like, you know, even livelihoods and entrepreneurship is pretty decentralized in the country. We have, I think, more than 90% of the businesses in the country, which are micro and small enterprises. So it is very decentralized in that way. And I think like developmental organizations are able to latch on to that or leverage on that. So that is something we definitely have, you know, have the fortune of. In terms of energy sources, see, I, I think we in our work have not engaged with energy departments that much. We've always believed that energy needs to be a thought process for any developmental activity that is being planned, right? So let me give you an example. Now, for example, in India, when we look at agri-coal storage units, it's something that is in need to actually boost the farming infrastructure in the country. We do recognize that as for the produce that we have, we need about 65 million metric tons of agri-coal storage. Out of that, we currently have capacity of about 32 to 35 million metric tons. About half of it, about 40% of it is something that we need to develop. Now, the Ministry of Agriculture, the National Bank for Rural and Development, can actually lay out policies and incentives to finance coal storage units to come up. They can subsidize coal storage units to come up across the country to meet this deficit that is there. What they will not do is account for the energy economics of, of this coal storage unit itself, right? So now you're saying there are 30 million metric ton of coal storage units that we need to have, but the energy for that is going to be equal to the energy of nine power plants. Do we have that? Do we not have that? Let's plan for it from the beginning. Add a few amount, add some amount to it to actually make it more sustainable, even from an energy perspective. And again, I'm not saying sustainable from an environmental perspective. I'm saying those coal storage units itself, because of costs of grid going up slowly, because they will be paying commercial rate, because there will be power cuts, because there are reliability issues, because of which they will have to depend on generator, that coal storage is not going to run as a proper coal storage, which is going to result in loss of market linkage, wastage of food, et cetera, et cetera. So why not? from the beginning itself, plan for all of them to go off the grid. Similarly, health facilities. If we're looking to health upgrade health facilities today, where five seconds of power cut can cost a life, 10 minutes of power cut can cost a life, a few hours of power cut can result in vaccines getting spoiled. If we are upgrading the health facilities, instead of the health department paying energy bills every year, year on year, just go off the grid. So that's basically the, the kind of agenda that we've been pushing on. We've been saying, let's make getting off the grid a good thing. And it's not a bad thing because whole of Europe is saying, let's move off the grid. It's an inefficient to be on the grid anymore. And we, on the other hand, are basically saying electrification means coming on the grid, right? It's, it's inefficient to do that. So I do feel that while there is, uh, you know, maybe about, as you said, about 10% of the total energy which is coming from renewables. But I think what we need is that actually transition to a narrative which is saying, let's plan for everything to inherently think about energy and from a decentralized space and build a system which is going towards that. And that's what we've been trying to do with state departments, health departments, agriculture department, rural development departments, 
across the country. And we have been getting a lot of traction in that whole narrative. Just yesterday, there was someone who at the state level told us that, you know, instead of buying power from another state, using my tax money to buy power from another state, I might as well take a loan and put it on all my government buildings going off the grid completely. I save so much money. So as long as I am able to see, you know, a, a, that kind of a, a trajectory or break even for myself, as I said, there is economic benefit in that transition now. And the more evidence and more muscle on the ground that we're showing that people are taking those steps, the more we will have more, more and more people who will get convinced towards it as well. So that's been our take in terms of how we see the future of energy and development to be in a, in a country like ours. And would uh, getting off-grid be a possibility for people who live in cities? Like, would uh, the buildings and uh, the roofs be tailored for this? So cities are slightly, of course, more complicated because we have many dense cities. There is also, of course, an aspect of shadow-free areas. So you have land use planning that needs to come into the place, which, which ensures that there is not a building that's going higher up than me and actually that shadow influences the way that I am uh, looking at my energy generation itself. There is, of course, like a lot of push in the cities, which is for grid tie systems currently in India, particularly, which is saying that, you know, you generate how much power you can, you know, take that off the grid as much as possible. And if you're doing anything extra, you feed it back to the grid. In our country, however, we do have a lot of inefficiencies in the grid itself. So transmission losses are huge because of which we need, maybe like in cities, actually it makes more sense to do microgrids for cities rather than kind of looking at um, the larger grids and, and larger distances that we're seeing traversing. But rural areas where it's more kind of um, more widespread, not so dense, not so high rise, DRE is definitely one of the, one of the solutions that we could go for. In places like Bangalore and stuff, grid die systems maybe, or even looking at systems which take, which I'm able to generate and at least use in the morning and take all my morning load off the grid. I think like things like that, we will have to think of more innovatively. Okay, that's very interesting also because I would expect cities to be much warmer, hence the use of conditioners, air conditioners being more widespread in, in cities, which in turn very often leads to warmer temperatures uh, outside when there is not the air conditioners. So that would make sense also to have this kind of, of approach and um, and uh, ways to to kind of shed the loads as well. Yeah. In India, however, I think there is still a booming air conditioning market. Uh, of course, there are several reports which kind of show how we are expecting that market to grow twice, thrice, 10 times the amount in the coming years with heat stress as well. But I think like, you know, again, we need to be able to say, what does that lead to? Going towards air conditioning does lead to energy affordability, energy poverty issues as well, because you are putting people in the burden of energy. Whereas I think like in many Indian cities, it's still possible to mitigate the use of air conditioning by justify designing energy efficient buildings. And I think like that is something that we really need to take seriously because you have a lot of buildings which are a glass facade in cities because you're trying to in the West where you are trying to soak up energy because it's a cold country. We are not. We need to have good insulation, which actually doesn't capture the heat. It actually keeps the cone inside. Then we need to look at different kind of ventilation mechanisms. We need to look at 
so much of our building is not built affordable housing i think most of it is going to come up in the coming few years and we need to make sure it's with building materials that is helping insulate and not capture heat so i think there are still like aspects like that which can uh, help ensure that future air conditioners people don't necessarily need to buy uh, or even if they buy they use it only you know a few days in the in a year when it really is the worst of the heat stress but otherwise you know they're able to do with a the fan they're able to do with good ventilation and insulation in the buildings itself and that's something that we have a built environment team on which continuously looks at setting kind of design benchmarks for small workspaces you know uh, small units which are looking at food processing you know street vendors houses who are cooking the whole day long because in the evening they go into the markets and they need to have everything ready which means they have a stove running the whole time in a tin sheet house it's capturing heat even more so trying to kind of look at saying let's not look at air conditioning or technology as the first solution let's make the building energy efficient first reduce the need for cooling itself as much as possible and then provide active cooling solutions and energy for that so that's again something i don't think we have very good energy efficiency guidelines which definitely needs to be boosted a lot more otherwise we'll be putting people in an energy poverty cycle uh, for the future Yes, when we we met the first time uh, in February uh, this year during the International Energy Poverty Action Week, and you mentioned, uh, for instance, that during um, heat waves there were some recommendations to stay indoors, and you said no. In many many cases, it's like the worst uh, scenario. Can you develop a little bit on that? Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying, like in a lot of homes in slums or rural areas. increasingly the buildings that are coming up are using tin sheets uh metal sheets which is basically why because it's easy to transport and it's easy to construct with it's cheap as well but what is also happening is is that these homes are one if i go back to the tin sheet houses itself it's not very easy to design for a window and a ventilator and you know exhaust fan whatever you might need it's not easy to do that but the other aspect is also that when we look at poor communities home is a workplace often and many of them actually do a lot of food processing work so as i said they are street vendors they're making chips they're making you know all kinds of snacks in india we love our snacks so and we have a different type of snack which requires a lot of cooking so that means you have a building which is soaking up heat and you are working with heat internally as well or you're mo- working with big machinery that is producing heat so everything is getting captured so you're constantly in an oven and as i was saying you know what you mentioned that there were a lot of bido community based organizations who went about in places like like delhi where temperatures were reaching reaching as high as 43 45 saying that in the afternoons from you know 12 to 3 pm you know let's close all the factories primarily or construction sites primarily or just generally promoting people to stay indoors start work early go to late in the evening but in this time period stay indoors but what they started realizing that indoors sometimes the temperature was more than outside because of the reason that i just stated and so there were heat stress deaths happening when people were actually indoors when we started to kind of account for this as well we realized that even in karnataka when we are all facing temperatures close to 35 
Some of these places have temperatures as high as 42 because there's a seven degree difference because of that heat absorption and me cooking inside constantly. So heat stress from the perspective of these poorer communities meant something else altogether. And that is something, again, which doesn't surface a lot of the times because we don't really, we're not able to even fathom that that's the situation in these places. And of course, I think heat stress is going to keep continuing. I think just generally yesterday I was reading about how even Vietnam, Singapore are just seeing record high temperatures and with the kind of humidity that those countries have, it's going to be unbearable for the poor. And tin sheets as a construction material has just seen see it everywhere in these rural areas. And you cannot imagine, it's like living in an oven. It's just something to experience. You feel like that's what you want to devote your life to if you've experienced it even for a few seconds. That's exactly how uh, solar cook stoves are made. Indeed, they're made of uh, tin sheets. So yeah, it makes sense that indoors are just uh, unbearable. And now we are reaching the end of this absolutely fascinating conversation. I think we could continue for hours. So we'll make sure that our listeners uh, do have uh, ways to contact you and follow your work. And uh, I will also put the link to the International Energy Poverty Action Week. Thanks, Igor, for granting that. And so that they can really follow up. But I wanted to ask you, what makes you really hopeful? What makes me really hopeful is actually that there is a lot of work happening. I think there are a lot of people who are finding solutions, partnering with people who have the solutions, championing them, really helping them scale. There is a lot of people, you know, I think there is like generally more and more awareness around climate, around the role of energy, around the role of cross-cutting thinking. <laughs> um, and I think we have like generally on Circle Foundation, for example, at average age, Used to be much younger, but right now we're at about 32 or so, because slowly we've all grown in the organization. But I think like generally there is a lot of interest from people in being just like, you know, it doesn't matter what I know, what I don't know, but I'm here to find a solution and let me kind of do whatever it takes to find that solution. And I feel like I get most of my energy from like constantly meeting people who are, who've almost gotten it, kind of gotten it you know, have gotten it and are taking it to a different level. And the moment you see that, you realize that it's possible and we just need more of us. And that's the main thing. So anyone who's interested, please know that the biggest thing that the development sector needs is human resource. We don't need your money. We don't need anything. We need more people doing this. And then as soon as we have that, we'll have more customized solutions going on the ground to people who need it. It gives you so much happiness. <laughs> that's great. Well, I said at the beginning that you were a true leader and that's exactly what you are. If you are showing the way and uh, you're an inspiration for all of us. So, so thank you so much, Rashita. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and uh, I've learned so much today. Uh, so thank you so much and I uh, hope we will be able to continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Marianne. It was it was fun. I didn't know how the one hour passed. <laughs> But it was an absolute pleasure and hope we can stay in touch and continue this and, and would be happy to get in touch with anyone who has questions from here on. Great. Thank you so much, Rashida. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe 
And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.